You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 248 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are joined by Jacques Olivier. He's appeared before on the podcast in episode 56, way back when. In this appearance, uh, Jacques is going to tell his very interesting life story full of adventure, grief, joy and healing. Among many things, Jacques is a musician under the name Nature Loves Courage and we will end the episode with one of his songs. I'll post some links to his music in the program notes and on naturalbornalchemist.com. Also, feel free to follow the podcast in social media or leave a nice review on iTunes. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. Okay, enough of that. Let's get to it. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, our natural born alchemists. Before we get into what we are going to talk a bit about, can you just tell the listeners who you are and what you do? You've been on the podcast before, but for people who might not uh, remember. Yeah, I can do that. Uh, my name is Jacques Olivier. And I think the last time I was on the podcast, we discussed Engines and my connection to Terrence McKenna. Uh, I'm a musician. And um, that's pretty much what I'm going to do the rest of my life. <laughs> it's it's how I uh, am creative. It, it, it feeds my soul. It's what I contribute to the the rest of humanity. Is what 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 I'm the way I feel about it. And recently, you had quite an initiation. Uh, can you tell a bit about what what happened? I will. And I'll, I'll kind of go into the whole, there's some background story to it and everything, but I'll start at the beginning. Good place to start. Um, in 20, 2008, I, was, I found myself living at Terrence McKenna's home in um, Hawaii, caretaking his home because I... Uh, I, I made a connection with his family, with his son, Finn, in particular, at, uh, at the, uh, just before Terrence died. I had made a connection with Terrence in 1999. And um, as a result of that, I, I found myself <laughs> in 99 going to the Amazon, working with some uh, Shipibo shaman. And then... Uh, Work and then I had an experience of smoking DMT with Terrence himself. I think I was the last person he sat for. I was a, number thirteen in a group of thirteen with his particular uh, crystal rock clear DMT. That was a definitely major eye third eye opening. That combined with um, my work with. Uh, the Amazon 
and I found myself in a spot of in in a consciousness state of complete free flow, which means there's no resistance. And when you don't put resistance to anything, you don't get resistance. So anything can be manifested. And there's a Hawaiian word called ike, which means um, there are no limits. So long story short, after Terrence died and he sat with me, I began sitting with people with 5-MeO-DMT because uh, I had I had had the experience of sitting with him, but I had also uh, uh, found 5-MeO, which was, it's definitely different than NN-DMT in that uh, NN-DMT, you're in the carnival. You get a lot of visuals, and that's what Terrence loved. But 5-MeO seems to rocket you past. It's like the frog medicine. It rockets you past all that and you come to a place of instant uh, acknowledgement or experience of everything at once everything that ever was and they call it a whiteout. if you read sasha shogun's description of 5-meo-dmt you'll get a, a clear clearer idea because he's very eloquent in his description um i found that i, I ended up sitting with Pete, that became my gig afterwards. After Terrence died, I was like, okay, this is something I can do to, to improve, uh, in my mind, facilitate improvement and cognitive ability for those who seek it. And so I, for about five years, I sat with people all around the world with 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine. And because I, because I had the experience with Terrence sitting with me, I knew what to do and how to do it. And so uh, I had many, many incredible breakthroughs for people that I couldn't, if, if they walked in front of me now, I wouldn't even recognize it because I worked with so many people. But uh, it was a very rewarding experience. I, I didn't charge for the experience. It was just if someone knew and someone was ready and they wanted it, it was, it was a go. We just did it. And so basically 5-MeO is a near-death experience that's brought on voluntarily. And the way I know that, well, i got to skip ahead. I'm just going to keep going. Um, it's basically a near-death experience because you, you completely go out of body and uh, you go into the state of consciousness that is 5-MeO. Do any people who uh, use this uh, uh, substance ever freak out from that experience? Because some people might find it very unsettling or do everybody you work with uh, had a good experience? Well, I found out pretty early on that I needed to screen who was going to do it very highly uh i i first i i I was a couple of two i think two experiences one in particular stands out out of the hundreds and what it was was i was preparing a circle of friends that wanted the experience and were willing and had done their research and i knew them for many years and just as we started the circle someone that one of the people knew came into the room 
and he watched he watched me doing it and he decided that he wanted to do it well I, at that point you know i was pretty new to sitting with it and i i didn't i knew that i i probably should have known it wasn't a good idea to sit with him with it but since everybody was there and he was begging me i was like well okay so i sat with him i given the hit and he went into a, a psychotic freak out. He thought I was trying to kill him, right? And we had to restrain him. Five of us tried to restrain him. He broke loose. He went running through the streets of Long Beach. I heard later that he ran through a, 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 a drive-in at Jack in the Box. You know, and so I don't really ever know what happened to him. Uh, I know he didn't die. But he, it was not a terribly, it wasn't like most, like all the other experiences where uh, they were, it was a deep, controlled kind of thing and people really liked it. From that experience, I vowed that uh, I will never sit with somebody just just comes randomly in, right? It's got to be someone that is prepared, knows what he's getting into, blah, 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 blah. So that's one that, you know, it does have the, like anything that's that powerful, it has the potential for misuse. And I'd say as in all the, in all the experiences I, I, uh, I, I provided for people, that was the most, if you want to call it negative, ne negative experience. I later came to find out that he has an identical twin and he is, it's unresolved things with that so i mean I, who knows what was going on in his mind but um i'm sure he's okay today but it was very difficult on everybody difficult on me and, and but it was a learning experience and i'm sure i'm sure he learned from it too is that the one you get from the toad yes it is and i recently uh <laughs> if you look on youtube Uh, Mike Tyson recently had that experience a year or so ago, and it has completely changed his demeanor. I mean, he is a changed man. If you watch the YouTube video, watch it. Mike Tyson, the big fighter, is now a big sweetie pie, and it, and and that's been my that was generally my experience with sitting with people. There was one guy in particular, his name was Robert. His He's just oh, from a very, 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 very wealthy family. And um, I sat with him a total of three times. He found out that somebody was doing this. He called me in. I went to his house. And I, I sat with him, and he turned into, like, he's from Caesar bloodline. I mean, it's like crazy. And uh, he turned into a snake. It literally would turn into a snake in the experience, but he, to him, it was, it was really valuable. And because the way I know is because when I first met him, he was a hunter. He was, uh, nothing wrong, nothing against hunters, but he, he was sort of, uh, a, a extreme narcissist. Uh, and, and he, had, he, he would, he would hunt with machine guns kind of thing. You know, it wasn't like bow and arrow and I, sacred you know kind of thing after sitting with him and after seeing him more than once he he rejected all that he softened he he bought a piece of land in hawaii which 
I think it was just because he'd never been to Hawaii before for some reason. He'd been all around the world, but uh, he went there because I, I don't know. I always talked about Hawaii as being my home, which it was after looking at Terrence's. And uh, he started uh, uh, a company called Earthshift. And it's on the internet and it's all, he stopped eating meat. He was a very, uh, uh, you know, he was a carnivore big time. He stopped eating, went full vegetarian, went full, and, and he, he runs a, a, a now he's got a, a, cl- a clinic, I guess you'd call it. It's not so much a clinic as a retreat in Hawaii where he takes people on two week water fasts to completely reset their system. And he's complete vegetarian. He's changed his entire being. He's got pigs for pets. He doesn't slaughter them. So I, I watched the transform people just in miraculous ways. And if you want an example of that, somebody that's well known, go watch Mike Tyson's interview and ask him when he talks. They talk about the toad. It sounds very interesting. I've read a lot about this white hat. It's 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 not that easy to to um... Uh, get hold of this substance or find somebody who's a good sitter uh, I mean DMT you can make yourself but this is more complicated right? Well uh, you can synthesize it from frog venom if you if you know where to find Sonoran desert toads and you capture some and basically you squeeze the pimples at the side of their neck it will secrete uh, 5-MeO DMT and you know if you're dry and turn it into a crystal but that's a pretty you know it's pretty specific in the world where you find those toads it's Buf- Bufo alvaris is what the the species of toad it is it, it's used as a, as a dis- defense mechanism by the toad and so the toad yeah if somebody if, if uh, uh, another predator takes a bite or somehow I think he, he secretes he secretes over his body out of these like pimples and it just basically stuns the predator you know so they can make a getaway now uh you're saying it's difficult to to obtain i'm sure it you know probably is i stopped doing that work in 2005 so i did it from 99 to 2005 and uh not that i wouldn't do it anymore but when i was doing it it was easily available on the internet on just the regular internet because it was un unscheduled, uh, you know, it was an unscheduled substance. So there were there was a, a lab called Eshu, where I and I know the person that was making it that I'd met, that I'd met at a Terrence McKenna conference. So I was able to obtain grams of it, and it's active at five milligrams, like the size of a match head. One hit, it's not it's not difficult to break through like NN can be. It's not a harsh smoke. NN can take you two or three hits of a harsh smoke. 5-MeO, you don't even taste it. One hit, and it's bye-bye, baby. Does it last as long as uh, the other DMT kind? And did Terrence also try it? Yeah, it's a... Uh, okay. It's it's approximately lasts about as long, which is 10 minutes. But since you're completely out of consciousness... It's as if it's eternity. Just like when they put you out uh, at the hospital for a surgery, they put you out, you wake up, you think it's like five minutes later and it's been like hours. So, But this is sort of the opposite. You smoke it and <laughs> and you're 
under for maybe 10 minutes. But when you wake up, it's as if time has completely disappeared. Uh, t- uh, when you, Your second question about Terrence trying it. I, I discussed this with Dennis after, because Dennis uh, appreciates it. He's, he's like, oh, yeah, five of me, oh, yeah. But Terrence was really into the carnival. He was really into visual hallucination. So to him, it was like, I remember I read a description by Terrence of Five and Mio. He says, and there's there's actually uh, one of his uh, discussions about it on, on the internet somewhere. And he said, yeah, it's you smoke it and you're getting anticipation and rush and everything, but the visuals never come. So for him, it was disappointing. When I asked Dennis about it later after Terrence had died, he goes, yeah, he goes, I think he just didn't get enough of it. So that, that kind of answers that question. Okay, so please continue your story uh, I, before I interrupted it. When Terrence died in 99, I was doing this work for five, for five, five years. I quit my job at the LA Weekly, which was a weekly newspaper. And before the internet, in LA, that's what you went to. It's like 300 pages a week. All the entertainment stuff was there. Everybody used it as reference. I had worked there for 16 years up to that point. And when I came back from the Amazon, I, I realized I created my own prison. Basically, I was working the job. I was slaving my, my, you know, I was a dedicated worker for the weekly because it was a passionate, you know, place to be. But at that point, after the Amazon, I realized that the toxicity levels, the stress levels were too much. So in two th- after 9-11, 2001, I quit my job and I went full time uh, sitting for people with 5MEO. That and to make some extra money, I was chauffeuring psilocybe cubensis from the Olympia, Washington area to Southern California. So I was like a taxi driver for mushrooms to make, just to make ends meet. Uh, I, you know, I bear, I basically lived in my RV. It's like my, my lifestyle completely changed. And it was like, okay, if I'm going to do this work, I'm not going to be able to make a lot of money because I didn't, I wasn't like, you know, I'd, I'd go, I'd go up to Olympia and get maybe 10 pounds, you know, and then I'd bring them to LA and sell 10 pounds and make maybe a thousand or 1500 bucks. It wasn't getting rich for me. It was all about, uh, consciousness and, and spreading, uh, and providing medicine. Basically I did that until 2006. And in those five years, I w- especially, uh, especially 99 and 2000, I, I kind of decided to, see stretch the limits of consciousness with myself and i was experimenting with things like 5-meo-dipt diisopropyltryptamine which i had a near-death experience with that because i accidentally overdosed because after 9-11 all the airports were like uh uh really crazy so i, I did some creative smuggling techniques and i accidentally took five about 300 milligrams of DIPT, which is active at 15 milligrams. And every milligram more, it like it gets super intense. So 
20 to 20 milligrams of 5-MeO-DIP is unbearable for people. I accidentally took 300. I related this story to Sasha Shogun because it is one of the chemicals that, that or one of the medicines that he had synthesized first. Um, you know, if you look at look up in TCAL, uh, there's the formula and the, the acti- activity, what it does. And it's a tryptamine, which means it's in the mushroom family. So it's a super synthesizer physically, but there's none of the, none of the head trip. You know, it's like you smell more, you take, feel tactile is, and, and things like that. And 2CB, I, I worked with that. Uh, anything that was cutting edge. So, you know, I, w- I was in a place, and that with ayahuasca, I was in a place and 5-MeO-DMT of third eye wide awake, right? But at about 2006, uh, my bo- I was starting to feel the effects. You know, I was starting to like, okay, I need to slow down because <laughs> I was in my 40s. You know, I need to slow down. I've, I've, I've pushed the envelope as far as I can push it and I'm kind of broke. And so, uh, I just decided, okay, it's time to stop for a second and take a breather. I got a job trimming weed in Mendocino. A friend of mine had a weed farm and I went up there, and it's all still illegal. Weed was illegal. Yeah. But, uh, but it was like, so we were back in the mountains. I would work with the plants I wasn't doing any any psychedelic. I just we're eating homegrown organic food. It was like a really wholesome environment. So I used that time to to sort of get my uh, body together and give myself a rest and ground. And we can be grounding compared to the other things I was taking. So it was a grounding experience. But I was still like you know third eye wide awake, right? So. Anything can happen, right? And so I, I started my own weed farm in 2008. I got a plot of land near where I had worked for him. And I did, I did like a comfortable 25 plants, which is what Mendocino was tolerating. The locals were tolerating 25 plants. So we grow three-pound plants, you know, do that. And, and the price of weed was 3000 a pound. So there was a way to make a a living at it, right? And so I did that for 2008 and 2009. In 2009, I connected with Finn, and he wanted someone to caretake Terrence's home uh, in Hawaii. So I said, hey, I want to do that. And it was not just caretaking, but make improvements. And and mostly he wanted somebody there to, to, to take care of the chakruna, which is the Socotri Veritas aspect of uh, ayahuasca. And he's got vine everywhere. And he also had a big salvia divinorum garden. But now, you know, Terrence had been dead for seven years. The house had been pretty much needed some renovation. And so I went there to do that. And I saw in 2009, I not only did I have the, the house and and garden in hawaii on botanical dimensions but i had my own marijuana garden that i ran remotely uh in mendocino uh at that time i reconnected with a woman that i had met in in the 80s who who was married at the time i was married at the time 
but we made a connection in 2008 and we, I just really fell in love with her. So she, she came out to, she quit her job, came out to live with me in Hawaii. And, uh, her name was Jacqueline. I'm Jacques. So it was like this twin, twin flame soul thing. Right. And, uh, my life at that point, I took stock in my life. My father was able to visit me out there. My son was able to come out. I'm living in Terrence McKenna's house with my soulmate. I've got ganja farm happening. It was way beyond anything I'd ever dreamed possible, right? It manifested as a result of third eye being completely awakened. There's no limits. One, one uh, side question before you continue. One thing I've always uh, wondered about uh, Terence's house and garden and that, how was it supported by the sales of his books and that considering he was dead? Because even though he made so many talks, they're all free online. So, I mean, he, the family can't be making any money from that. Did the money come from him selling books? Well, <clears throat> when they when they built the house, they built his particular A-frame house probably seen pictures of it it was at it was when cat his wife and him divorced but it's on the same piece of land they have a 10 acre plot called botanical dimensions and he was able to build the house not not up to code by the way but built the house and it's way off grid and with the money that he'd made as a as a publisher so the house was basically paid for and it was just existing there with uh caretakers who were you know maybe didn't really have the energy to keep it up so that's why finn asked me to do it he was like okay i want you in there and so the house was our it wasn't generating money but it, it wasn't costing a lot of money it was already built paid for and the land is it was built and the taxes are paid for from cat from botanical dimensions who still has the house above it and you get like a free a free place to live basically also yeah well it was free but it was basically in exchange for work and i i did a lot of work and it was a lot of, out of love i sanded the decks i repainted and but and i found out from finn that a really real reason he wanted me there is to take care of the plants we ended up planting another 40 chacruna plants you know uh and there's also a weed that grows an invasive weed that grows in hawaii on his property and everywhere called coster's curse it came in on a from the philippines and it's just like this really woody really tenacious uh shrub that grows to like six seven feet and it obscures the entire rainforest So it comes through, instead of seeing the Hawaiian ferns and everything, you just see nothing but costumes curse. And I, I, we must have eradicated tons of that stuff, and it was hard, and we do bur big burn piles and things. So basically, uh, my time was spent, I mean, between times lounging and hanging out, but I was working for, for, for being there. It wasn't, I was being of service. It wasn't like I was just hanging out free you know rent free i was there was definitely an energy exchange um but i was glad to do it i was glad to do it because uh i love terrence and you know i knew him and he knew me and 
is it still there and is it possible for people to visit all these plants? I, I know botanical dimensions are around. It is still, the houses are still there. Uh, they don't, they keep the location really guarded because they don't want people going there and they don't want it to be a tourist attraction. And occasionally people do find it or they wander up the driveway. And there was a neighbor named Kenny who was like an ex-Marine that's really kind of crazy. <laughs> but he was, it's like if you, if somehow you find out where it is and you come up the driveway, it's a long driveway. He's on the other side. Uh, you'll be confronted by someone who isn't very nice, <laughs> at least to strangers. So, no, it's not really accessible. Uh, from what I understand, CAT every year does a botanical uh, class associated with the University of Minnesota. So, uh, my understanding is that once a year, at least that was happening, either Dennis or her will take a group of students up there one day and go along the trails and then show them the ayahuasca and show them. You know, but it's 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 a pretty well guarded secret, and they don't want people to know where it is. That's how you make more people want to go. <laughs> a mysterious place is often more attractive than if it wasn't. Well, well, yeah, but you know what? Even if it wasn't mysterious, then it'd be worse. If it was hard, it was hard. If it if it's not advertised or people don't know, somehow they have to stumble upon it or really make a concerted effort. If if you just said, oh yeah. We're going to do tours here and turn it into Disneyland. That's not what he wanted. That's not what the family wants. Oh, that's true. That's true. It's also an important place for uh, all those plants that need to be protected. Exactly. In fact, that's Kenny every once in a while, from what I understand, will catch some hippies that are up there trying to harvest the ayahuasca, right? So when... when um, Oh, that then you sink really low if you steal from Terence old plants. You know, couldn't do that. Right, but you know, pe people can be that way. I mean, believe me, believe me, they can. Even if they're, you know, call themselves entheogen followers, there's a lot of people that just just uh, don't really get it. And it, what's really interesting, Alex, is back in 2099 at the at the conferences in Palenque. There was this a discussion about they knew that in the next 10, 20 years, there was going to be a popularization of it. People were more people, more and more people were going to find out about it. There's going to be more and more charlatans. There's going to be more, more and more bad trip, bad experiences, but deaths. Right. But that just comes with the territory. I mean, you know, if uh, there's a certain amount of people that are going to get it and a certain amount of people that aren't. And it's the and these medicines are not for everybody. They're not. There's a meme that I saw on the internet that says psychedelics aren't for stupid people. Because if it's someone is an ungrounded schizophrenic personality and they go deep into psychedelics, it can do definitely do more harm than good. So all the people that I know, including myself, that have success with psychedelics are people that have grounding. You know, ground the experience with intention, uh, do the proper uh, preparation in set and mindset and setting um, like that. But there's a lot of people that I hear about now that 
are just kind of wigging out. They're having really tough experiences, not really processing it into something good. Because sometimes you can have a bad trip and learn something from it. And sometimes you can have a bad trip and it's just bad. It makes it makes things worse. So you're living with this uh, newfound love in this house? Okay, so here, let me bring this story up today. Because it relates to where what the event that just happened last Friday the 13th, 2019. Um, so at that point, my life is, in my mind, beyond anything I could have imagined. You know, I had always wanted to live in Hawaii, but not only was I living in Hawaii, I was caretaking Terrence McGinnis place with my, my uh, twin flame. Um, everything was just perfect. And then in 2010, my marijuana farm, we had to move in 20, 2009. It was the last year I could do it on that property because they were going to sell the property. So I went in with a couple of younger guys who were kind of go-getters in 2010 on a different property. And we kind of, it was the second year of Obama. He said he was going to legalize pot. We were like, and this was, this was my miscalculation. I was like, okay, all the growers were going big that year, right? planting twice as much as they planted. We planted 99 plants because that was our understanding of what the state was going to put at the limit. What we miscalculated was that it doesn't matter what the state allows, it's a county by county thing. And Mendocino was up to that point was happy with five, 25 plants. But anything over that, they were still going to target. So we set, we, you know, we planted our things in 2010, our garden. We had 100 plants in 100-pound bags, uh, grow bags with cages to guide everything, manicure the entire space, maybe, maybe a soccer field big size, right? We cut down probably too many trees that was another miscalculation so that everything would have 24 hours sun right we just wanted to grow monsters right and that was a miscalculation and that's probably the only time in my life that i went with it because these two guys just just my idea was that i'll do this year and that's it i'm done i won't have to do anything for money so that that's greed and that was my miscalculation. And then it's July 12th, 2010. I'm at my giant marijuana garden. The plants are now six feet tall. They're just starting to take root. They're really happy. Everything is manicured. Everything is perfect. The helicopter flies over. Okay, well, the helicopters always fly over Mendocino and nothing ever happened. So we couldn't really give it a second thought. At that point, there's nothing else we could do anyway. We can't just close, stop everything. You just, you just think we say the right prayers, you know, and they'll just gloss over. Uh, the, the next week, July 12th, 2010, they came up with machine guns at six in the morning. You know, get on the ground, like the whole thing. And they just did their, their routine. And the, the sheriffs in Mendocino are yahoos. They're like cowboys. They they were they were like, where's all the other drugs? You know, because a lot of marijuana farms, unfortunately, they're, they're not, you know, the people 
are doing other things and they're dealing other things. I had made sure that there was nothing, not even something to smoke there, uh, besides our garden up there. So they didn't find anything. They went in the, they, they drank the, we had a couple of beers in the, they drank the beers, anything. It was just kind of a crazy scene. So I ended up getting arrested with my son. They bring us down to Mendocino jail. All right. Next. That's like, what am I going to do now? You know, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to Hawaii at Terrence's and just stay there and live there full time and chill out, hire a lawyer, you know, get let it all blow over, which I did. We, uh, I still had that, you know, which was like, okay, I don't care if I have a marijuana farm. Uh, I'll pay. I ended up having to sell just about everything and borrow money to get out of jail and hire a lawyer. But that's okay because I was still had Terrence's place, right? And, and I just went there and did nothing but re-sand the decks, do all, all the work to, to improve the house and garden. And it was good work. You know, it just really felt good. It's like, okay, this is what I need to do. Come the end of 2010, my girlfriend goes for a routine blood test uh, to get Hawaii, Aloha Care, which is uh, Hawaii's health insurance. Diagnosis comes back that she has Hep C. She didn't, and this is before they had the cure for Hep C, which came in about 2013, I think. She had Hep C, and she had liver tumors. And it was from a mistake that she made when she was in her teens, you know, sharing needles in the 70s. She, I, I, she didn't say that to me, but that's what she did tell me about one incident. So there I was. She ended up passing because it, it was inoperable. And I, I had no money. I couldn't afford a new liver for her. She ends up passing exactly one year to the hour, J July 12th, 2011, from the bust. She passed away. <sighs> I went into grief. I went into deep grief. I basically gave everything away at Terrence's. I couldn't be there anymore. It, I mean, I could, but I just didn't want to be there anymore. Uh, I didn't even know if I wanted to be alive at that point when she passed and it was the beginning of a you know I, I just gave I moved up to Javi up the northern part of the island Kohala I spent the days playing my ukulele uh, crying we, and, and we had a dog we had a dog together uh, Hoku it means star in Hawaii she's a pit bull and so me and Hoku just lived on the beach in my little old Subaru and uh did what I could do, and Hoku saved my life because I had to take care of her. If it, if I didn't have her, uh, I don't know. I just honestly don't know. It's it was a, a devastating loss, and uh, but I, I did everything I did I could do to crawl out of the depression. To just go ahead and let myself feel it, let myself cry, and let it pass, and then to move on. And then there were some positive things that happened up in Javi. You know, I got involved in a Hawaiian 
Hale building, which is a traditional Hawaiian building with no metal. Everything's tied together. We pray the forest to, to be able to uh, harvest the trees. We do kava ceremony. I was initiated because it was a group of Hawaiians with a kumu, all Hawaiian guys. I was the only white guy out of 15, and I was the oldest guy on the crew. So that was very healing part of the process. And I started to feel myself a year and a half later. And then this is the, the, the winter solstice of 2012, but when, when Terrence predicted the, the end of you know, the major change of everything. So um, December 2012 passes by, and I'm feeling like, okay, I've cried my heart out. Uh, I can't bring her back. I need to go on with my life, what's left of my life. At this point, you know, they're still negotiating the terms. No, actually, actually, what happened was they tried to charge me with felonies, me and my son and my lawyer, and I paid my lawyer, and he goes, what do you want? Because they, they, they have a technique of stalling the court, getting extensions, building the case. And after about a year or two years, they just go, well, what is it that I want? Because we've got, we've got cases backed up. You know, because they're always busting people. And I told them I didn't want any felonies and and I didn't want um, jail time. So my lawyer negotiated that. I did 70 hours of community service picking up trash at the airport. But that was done. That was resolved. You know, and uh, so it's December 2012 now. My fiance has passed away. My ganja farms. I'm not at Terrence's anymore, but I'm still alive. And then I, I find out that my dad is ill. So I go back to the mainland with the intention of spending time with him because he's in his 80s. He had uh, undergone an eye surgery, which went bad, uh, just corrective eye surgery, but it went bad because he had uh, his eyes were swelling. They would always run, and it, it, it created a situation where he couldn't golf anymore. And that's what that was his passion. And he started to lose his will to live. And with that came some Alzheimer's. So I went back there with the intention of just caretaking him, being with him, playing music for him, just doing what I could do. Because I'm his only child, only child. When I got back to the mainland, my stepmother, his wife, uh, limited the amount of time I could be with him restricted me a lot. Didn't want me to bring my, my, my music into it. And basically he ended up dying about six months later, uh, pretty much alone in a, in a caretake facility. So then I went into, uh, you know, I just gotten over the grief a year and a half before of that. I went into a different grief. You know, it was different because he lived his life the way he wanted to. And it was like, okay. But nonetheless, when your father dies, and especially if you can't be around him and you're kind of kept away from him because his wife is a strict Catholic and looked at me as a big drug addict. It was hard. And and it's like, okay. Um, then uh, Then I went to work setting up a couple of marijuana gardens for people, 
uh, in Santa Barbara and different places. And one day I was setting it up in Santa Barbara, setting one up and it was a real hot day and I, I was dehydrated and I had a stroke. I sat down and take a break. I had a stroke from one minute to the next. I, I lost my left side. Like I couldn't walk. I couldn't, I'd tell my, I tell my, my arm to move. It wouldn't move. That's what a stroke, that, that was the effect of the stroke on me. So basically I had a stroke, which is a failure of the heart. And I, I considered it like because of heartbreak, you know, my heart was broken for after losing the two closest people in my life. So I spent a year, the next year and a half, just rehabilitating my left side, learning, re, you have to relearn completely, relearn to walk, relearn to use your left arm. I couldn't play music anymore because I couldn't make chords anymore. But over time, incrementally, I gained my left side back. I still, to this day, I'm probably 99% back. But I, I uh, due to subsequent events that we're getting to at the end of the story. Um, so I, I, I'd spent uh, the next couple of years, in the next year or so, pretty much trying to get physically back. And by a year later, I was about 80, 80%. I could, I could move, I could play, not as well as before, but I could still play. And I was crawling out of the depression for that, from that, right? In 2015, when my son had come back from Hawaii a, after uh, we went there, we both went there after we got busted and he was living with me there, his mom was having problems. So he left and went back to Southern California to be with his mom. Uh, it turns out she had ALS, which is uh, Lou Gehrig's syndrome, where your nervous system completely shuts down. Uh, your brain is all there, but you you lose function of your body one thing after another. It's the same thing that uh, um, what's that famous physicist had that in the wheelchair? Stephen Hawking. Yeah, it was, it was that. That's what she had. That and that exhibited its first its first uh, uh, symptoms right around 2012 when I was coming back from Hawaii. When I saw, uh, when I went to visit her and my son, my son was trying to find, uh, she also had a boyfriend that uh, wasn't helping things. Uh, when I went to uh, visit them, she was pretty much in a wheelchair at that point. And I was like heartbroken, you know? And I said, Max, with my son, Max, we have to do something. We have to get her out of this. She was living in squalor with this guy who was, uh, you know, a pump head uh, who's basically using her to collect the disability checks so they could survive. And it's just an ugly, ugly situation. And I told Max, we have to do something. Uh, by at 2015, she, he had convinced her to leave this guy. So I said, okay, I went there, I picked her up. She's fully in her wheelchair, unable to almost move. I picked her up, didn't know what or how I was going to do something with her, but I picked her up, got her out of this 
shitty hotel in uh, you know weekly hotel in the valley in LA and drove her up to Mendocino where I had had my garden years before uh, went there spent about a about a month in hotels up there me doing everything for her feeding her with a spoon wiping her butt putting her in bed you know just the whole thing and and gradually she was and I I didn't know it was ALS at the time. Okay. At the time I thought she'd had a stroke. So I got her into rehabilitation. She did her best to try to, you know, get up and all that kind of thing. But, but, um, ultimately to no avail because it was ALS. No amount of rehabilitation is going to help it. It's just a matter of time. And I didn't realize that until October 2015 when i'd been taking care of, oh in the meantime when we first got them in the senior didn't have a place but then i i ran across an angel that helped me get a place and we we got this little uh unit underneath some of uh, his brother-in-law's house up in the hills of mendocino with a stream so i got to spend the last year of her life with her taking care of her and our son we'd rescued her and our family was kind of kind of reunited. We've been divorced for 17 years. But I always loved her. You know, it's like, just because you divorce someone doesn't mean you don't love them. It was a family. So just before David Bowie died, in 2016 of January, on January 3rd, she passed away. And there's a, you know, I, I'm not getting into the details of, of that, but it's kind of bizarre you know it's like the way things lined up she passes away so that's the third person in my life since 2010 the close three closest people in my life that had passed away and every time i'd i'd go through grief and i'd be crawling myself out of it and kind of like okay 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 and taking care of her i was of service so it felt good but then when she passed, I didn't think it would affect me that much because I always knew she didn't have much time to live, you know. But it affected me. I mean, you know, it can't not affect you. And so at that point, I went up and I got a job on a, on a friend's commercial marijuana farm in Humboldt, Humboldt County, Arcata. And I just worked, you know, worked for him for 20 bucks an hour under the table and used my expertise to, to make him lots of money. And um, it was good because I, I kept me occupied. It's like, okay, marijuana kind of that grounds me again, just working in the industry. And uh, I was feeling pretty decent, right? Uh but I, I, I was not, in hindsight, and I'll tell you why it's hindsight, because of what just recently happened to me. In hindsight, I was operating on some low-level depression, you know, after all the loss and the loss of heartbreak. I was not optimal. I was actually feeling that, I, well, I'm in my 60s now. Maybe that's it for my life. It's like, you know, I didn't feel uh, I had much value. I was, I didn't really take care of my physical appearance that well. And, but I did what I could. I've been living in a camper for years at this point, since I got back from the mainland to the mainland. 
quiet. So long story short, I'm, I'm getting to the culmination of the story, okay? And this is going to blow your mind. Before you get there, just one quick question. Did you ever work with uh, uh, ayahuasca or any of plant medicine to help your grief? Um, actually, I didn't because um, I wasn't in the headspace to do it. I thought that it might just make things worse. You know, I was not, I was not fully myself. I was basically just hanging on to survive. And I thought the thing to do right now is to ground, ground, not to, you know, go to these places that are, can be, and ayahuasca is shadow work. I mean, it's not all fun and games. And I saw the potential for me going really deep into the shadow and not maybe not coming back out. So no, as much as I love it, uh, I, I think prudently stayed away from that. Uh, I just wanted to ground out and, and feel, feel better, you know? And at this point, by working on the guy's farm, I was feeling like a year after my wife, my wife passed of ALS, I was feeling pretty decent. And I thought, well, what can I do now? This is 2017, 20, 2018. And so I'm a Canadian. I, have a, I had a Canadian passport that had expired. I'm a permanent resident of the U.S. I've been living in the U.S. for 50 years. But after 9-11, your permanent green card, was ex they just expired them all. And they made everybody go through Homeland Security and reapply for the, the privilege of living in the United States, right? Um, but I was Canadian, and I wanted to be able to travel. I thought, okay, what's left of my life? I want to travel. I want to, you know, I've, I've got nobody in, except for my son. And he, he was doing what he could to, because he suffered the same loss. He was doing what he could and he had a new girlfriend and I'm like, okay, I'll support that. You know, he was help. She was helping him. He, he was like on his own. It was a good thing. So I was like, well, it's just me and the dog now. Me and my pit bull that I got when I was living in Hawaii at Terrence's. So I thought, okay, I'd like to drive to South America. I'd like to do an overlanding. I like plotting this adventure for myself to really come back. And, uh, but I had to renew my passport. And um, it was a major hassle to try to overcome and do that while being in the U.S., because I would have had to renew my permanent resident card through Homeland Security. And the policy is you have to pay 500 bucks just to apply to do that with no guarantee that you get it. And after my bust, I probably wouldn't get it. So I thought to myself, I'm just going to go to Canada. And I called the, called the customs at the border and they said, are you Canadian? Can you prove you're Canadian? And I did, I could, because I had my old passport, I had my birth certificate. I go, yeah. So I drove up to the Canadian, to Orcas Island, which is where I've been living for the last year and a half. Uh, Orcas Island is a, very well known as a healing island. It's the last island in the United States, in the Puget Sound. You, and it's right across 30 miles from Vancouver. You can see it. 
and it's a one ferry ride to Victoria, BC. So I drove up there. I went through to Orcas Island where I have friends, one particular friend named Bruce, who founded Sub Pop Records, made millions with Nirvana and all that kind of stuff. And I had met him. I, the way I met him was in Hawaii in 99. I sat with him. He came up to me and asked me to, to take him on a 5-MEO trip, and I did. And so we became good friends. And in the early 2000s, I'd go to Orcas Island, and he would throw these insane parties, and we'd sit with people, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So on my way to Canada in 2017, uh, late 2017, I went through Orcas, and I visited him. And I just thought, you know, what's the, I, I like, I like Orcas. You know, I thought there might not be much left of my life, but I want to just enjoy it in a place of be- pristine beauty, which is what Orcas is in the healing island. So I thought, okay, I'm going to ground myself. I'm going to get a job at a market. Uh, there's it's, it's 5,000 people per permanent residence in, in, on Orcas Island. There's not that much business, but there's a market. There's a co-op market. And there's a few nice restaurants. I put applications to all of them and just thinking, uh, we'll see what happens, right? Then I took the ferry, went to Victoria, BC. And in August of 2018, I, I, got, my, I got my Canadian passport, right? So I was like, okay, one step at a time. You'll be able to take your adventure. And while I was in Victoria, uh, I got a phone call. And they wanted to interview me to work at the market. I'm like, okay. Came back to Orcas, got the job at the market. And I'm just being, just doing this kind of mundane job. But for me, that's all I wanted to do. I mean, you know, I I just wanted to ground out, be part of the community, get them to know who I am and what my integrity is, stand in my integrity and just work, you know, and be able to survive. Uh, I did that. I, I was at the regular market for a month and it was kind of hellacious. I went across the street to the co-op, which was a much better fit, easier work. It was a much better fit. Worked at the co-op for six months, right? Yeah, so it was 2019. Uh, a friend of Bruce and I put up, puts on a festival there yearly. Had had been doing that for the last five years called Imagine. The festival is basically a sacred art festival with world-class music and uh, really sweet vibe, no alcohol served, family vibe, psychedelic vibe, really nice, right? So I asked him, I said, you think I could play as Nature Loves Courage, which is my musical project? And he gave me a time slot. So this brings us to the current uh, thing, latest event that not now is really going to blow your mind and ties it all together, this whole story, right? So basically, I had been living in a state of uh, sort of semi-depression, but I always was crawling out of it. But I know I was not, I was, I was sort of, my third eye had sort of closed you know, not closed, but it was half open. And I, I was starting to resign myself to just live the rest of your life in beauty. And I don't know how long I'll have and it's all that. Um, so Friday the 13th, this last Friday, two weeks ago, comes around, right? 
Friday the 13th, and I'm playing a gig at Imagine Festival. It's it's early in the festival because the festival goes all weekend. It's 11 o'clock at night. It's not a big crowd, but there's about 50 people in the tent. I get through the set. I play I play a song. I play the Imagine song. I play my Sanskrit prayers. I play my Hawaiian chant prayers, uh, songs. You know, got through it. The gig was going really nice, well received. And uh, I get to the I get to the second to last law, song, which is a song called "Lazy" by David Byrne. And it's "I'm wicked and I'm lazy." Oh, don't you want to save me, right? The last words to the lazy song are this hard man hard times hard keeping it all inside good times good god so lazy i almost stopped and right at that moment i had a full-blown massive heart attack i collapsed on the stage people People were just like, I, I don't know what the reaction is. I've, I've talked to people since, but what happened was my, my, my heart had just given out. I had basically constructed my own death, right? I had orchestrated my own death um, to, the, to the second, right? <laughs> this is crazy because I realized this all now after two weeks later. There happens to be a trauma nurse present in the tent next door. She hears about, she comes over, starts pounding my chest, breaking my ribs, keeping my heart pumping to keep my brain alive, right? To keep oxygen, keep, keep blood flowing through my For about a half an hour, I hear. They come with paddles. They shock me six times before I come back to consciousness. So they bring me back. They bring me back. I mean, literally, I, I experienced death. I know what it is because I was, for, for all intents and purposes, I was dead. The survival rate of people that even just survive the coronary that I had is 5% survival rate. Considering I was in a remote island, uh, it's probably more like 1% because of the 5%, the people that come back, as vegetables is about, you know, it's, it's most of the 5% that survive. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this is a, this is two weeks ago. I had a full blown heart attack, but because I was at the Imagine Festival and they had the prep, they had everybody needed. There's actually a form of CPR that they perform a new form of CPR on Orcas Island only. It's brand new that allowed me to stay alive so i picked the place the time because you know if i thought i always thought if i want if i died i want to be doing something i love i was doing exactly what i love in exactly the place i wanted to be and in in hindsight i kind of i kind of can see that i think everybody when they die they kind of design it in some way uh, unless it's a complete accident, but even then there are no accidents, right? So um, um, I pulled it off. I'm here to tell about it. I'm a miracle right now 
They fixed my heart up. I spent 12 days in intensive care and I got out about a week ago and I'm back on Orcas Island. My follow up visit for, uh, for with the, with the heart doctor is on the 8th of October coming up. The result now for me has been my eye, my third eye is blown wide open. I have extremely precise cognitive abilities now. Uh, everything that up until the, in the week, the, the, the year that I lived on Orcas, I realized I was, I was doing the best I can, but I was still 60% of who I was. I'd kind of given up on who are, who are you? You know what I'm saying? But now that I'm back, other things that, that happened in the hospital, I had had sinus infection for years because working with the ganja and whatever, I had sinus polyps at night. I couldn't breathe. It was like it would come, they'd swell at night. I was constantly running. I had psoriasis. There were things that were comp, my heart being compromised were, were happening. Those are some of the, some of the things that were happening. Now they have fixed my heart. My, um, uh, the other part of it, I, once I got to Orcas, I started writing my memoirs because I figured I, don't, I might not have that much time left. I want to leave something behind. And I started writing them, and I got to the point of when, when my fiance died, and I hit writer's block, right? So um, now I've come back. All blocks are gone. All resistance is gone. My sight, I can smell again. I couldn't smell for those three years before. I have all my senses are heightened because my heart is pumping and it's oxygenating my blood. And there's, there is a, so after, you know, 20 years working with near death experience, I finally had full death experience, right? It's like, and the way I guess, you know, all I can just explain is when I sang that, that last song, it was like a feeling came up in my chest and I just surrendered, which is what you do when you take a 5-MEO hit. I instruct people, surrender, just surrender, let go. And I did. I totally let go. And I'm here to live and tell about it. And my, every aspect of my life has improved. And I vowed to uh, to to correct all the things that I always, that were blocking me, which was like things that were blocking me as like getting my internet presence for my music together. You know, all the things that, that I just didn't really feel like, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not meant to be maybe, you know, you know what I'm saying? That questioning my life. Now it's all brand new and everything physically has improved uh, to I'm feeling like the levels of, except for my cracked ribs and my endurance, it's like I feel 28 again. From what I understand, there are groups of people that have had similar experiences, like gone into death. There's actually a village in India who lives there. The only people that live there are people that have survived and thrived since a, a real death experience. And so I think I want to go check that out now. And uh, 
I'm just grateful to be here and I'm back and I'm going to make the very, very best of it. I, my diet now, instead of being like just eating chips and stuff, my diet is full on, full on health, right? Um, oatmeal in the morning, um, um, you know, long grain rice, um, fresh fruits and vegetables, low sugar intake no heart high carb thing i was i i've been studying that for a while but i wasn't implementing it because on some level i still wanted to die you know since my jack since jackie died i was and then all the other people in my life died i was like well I, not that i wanted to die because i kept coming but i guess i did because i designed it right i i wasn't intentionally wanting to die i was intentionally wanting to make the best of my life but i the way I didn't think my there was much left in my life, so I didn't actively participate. When it happened on stage, when you had a heart attack, did you know? Did you like have this thought in your mind? Oh, I'm dying now. Did you realize what was happening? No, no, no. I, I felt this swelling in my chest, and it was like a like when you when you start when you cry, you know, and you you get this this deep sense of you've ever cried that deeply um it, it's like a pain in the chest it's like you, oh, when you're overcome with emotion you know just overcome with emotion and when i felt it i was like okay surrender i mean that's what i thought but i, I didn't have a choice at that point i was gone my heart had fully stopped uh, they basically, when they rebuilt my heart, they told me I had a hundred percent occlusion in two of the, two of the veins of my heart. And, um, you know, so no, I didn't think I'm dying. I just thought it felt like coming onto 5MEO, you know, and I just remembered that. I was like, okay, okay, let go into this. And then I, then what happened was in my what I remember of it, it's like power down, right? Like when you have your phone and you go to shut it off and it just goes to black screen, power down. That's, that's what it was. The experience was one of being a part of infinite void. It wasn't me, but all there was was infinite void, right? Until such time as he gave me that sixth shock and I woke up. And I woke up and I was full, pretty clear and present. I was saying, they said, okay, we're going to put you in a hospital now. I'm like, in a helicopter now. I'm like, no, I can't afford it. And they're like, shut up. You know, I'm 65. I have Medicare now. It was all covered. I probably had a, a half a million dollars worth of work done on me in the last two, two weeks. And it's covered. It's covered because Medicare. If it, if it had been a year before that, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be into... You know, I'd owe everybody a half a million bucks. So the timing, the place, everything was somehow perfectly orchestrated by me subconsciously. And now I'm here to tell about it. And I'm here to, um, part of my powers, my enhanced power, I feel like I have enhanced powers. I mean, I can read, I can look at something and read it, read a person's energy. I, 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 if there's a problem, there's no problem. There's only a solution. You know, there's nothing. If something 
see, by thinking, oh, I want this to happen, but it doesn't happen. Instead of fighting it, instead of offering resistance, I'm like, okay, that means something better is going to happen. And it always does. It's been like two weeks of miracles now, you know, with that, with that mindset. So actually, if I had the choice to go back to my pre-stroke, my pre-heart attack uh, self, which was just a, not even a month ago, and now I wouldn't go back. I would, I would go through the experience again because I feel so blessed and so honored to be here. And, I, and everybody says, I tell them the story like, oh, it's not your time. You still have something left to do here. And I do. And I know exactly what it is. And I'm doing it. I'm finishing the book. It's going to be called Nature Loves Courage. The book will be, the first draft will be done by, by the end of this year. There'll be revisions. And by the middle of next year, it'll be out. And I've got a story to tell. And I'm sticking to it. <laughs> you just heard the story. Did you get any sense of uh, if it's nice to be dead or did or was it what you know what it is alex here's what it is perfect peace there's nothingness there's no sensation there is just peace you know there's nothing so nothing is the, the void and that's peace so and you know, there's no there's no guy with a beard you know there's none of that you know i've had dreams since when i was in icu that are insane stories but I, that'll be in the book too i we don't have to go to that place <laughs> it's quite scary to me to hear that because i live in a place where the very few times i or a loved one had to go to the hospital the idea of money never even entered our minds because it's free it must it must be horrible for those people i don't know how the situation is in the united states now really but to have to consider money if they're going to go to the hospital or not you know well like i said i didn't know that the helicopter ride which was like four thousand bucks for 30 minute ride i didn't know that my medicare which is the United States health insurance for people over 65. I had just turned 65 three months before. So had, had it happened at any other time before that, I would literally owe, owe the hospital you know, a million dollars. Because the people who are against that kind of system in the United States, I don't understand how they can be that. They must have not been sick yet. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's just greed. It's business. It's greed. The United States is, you know, a wonderful place, and right now it's also kind of a horrific place. There's there's just a uh, the other thing. One of the things that came to me, the insights that came to me, is somehow everything that exists, even Donald Trump, everybody's just playing a role. Everybody's playing a piece of the puzzle and, and it's all has to be the way it is until it, you know, if you look at history of humankind, the 
way we live, you and I, just the way we live, though, if you really look at it, is incredibly uh, beautiful compared to 30 years ago, 40 years ago, World War II, you know, going back, people had, had no, they didn't have cell phones. Even 20 years ago, most of my life, there were no cell phones. That was a dream, a Star Trek dream, right? So we're, uh, we are actually, just like Terrence said with the novelty wave, we are living, everything exponential. Everything is, and, and really, he said he predicted a permanent shift in things by, by, the, by 2012, December 21st. If you look back in history from now, he was right. Because by 2012, December, the internet was firmly established. Everything was, you know, we had the iPhone. You know what I'm saying? It's like things were like, things had shifted and will never go back. And now they're just, and all information evolves exponentially. So we're on a novelty wave that's just headed straight up. So even, even, there's a reason for everything. There's, you know, Donald Trump exists because sadly he's a narcissist he's always had everything he wanted but he's playing the role now of exposing uh of exposing the deep racism of the u.s that still exists you know the 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 corrupt the corruption and the failure of governments of big institutions are obvious to everybody right whereas and and that's just that's just accelerating all that so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really at, at peace with everything. I'm, I, I'm not, I'm apolitical, but I, I'm observational. And then the other thing that came to me at this point, because when I was in the hospital in intensive care, I started binge watching South Park. Have you ever seen South Park? Oh yeah, I've seen all of them. Yeah, it's hilarious, right? Because it makes, it, it just takes things to an extreme honest uh comical level and that what that teaches you is that the best way to survive this is to look at it as a south park episode it's funny it's the cosmic giggle you have to keep a sense of humor you have to lighten up and that's all that's what i learned in the amazon shamans were like lighten up you know don't make your problems your life get the sweetness out of life as you can like you have a daughter it's a sweetness man that's life you know that's the very reason we're here is to savor the sweetness of life and to laugh at ourselves and to laugh at it all and i know that sounds simplistic but that's some of the insights that have come to me since dying i was thinking we were going to close with one of your songs is there a particular one that you think would be fitting for this occasion and also talk about what it could what it's about what might be is something that was on my album in 99 it's it's the rave version of el alien uh because it's the one it's a song that introduces psychedelic salon podcast my friend lorenzo does psychedelic salon and that's that song intros every one of the things uh, up to now, I would have said Source, which is a the song that I uh, 
wrote and performed with my fiance in Terrence's um, library on her last birthday because it's very beautiful, but it's haunting, you know. And and uh, I always thought this is the most beautiful piece of music that I've written and performed, and I want to be remembered by that. But now I'm thinking, I'm I'm not grief. I'm not in grief anymore. I'm not in any kind of low-level depression on, my, on a subconscious level. I'm just fucking stoked, man. I'm ready to just go nuts <laughs> in a good way. So that song is kind of upbeat. It's electronica. It's the one that's like the guitar, you know, and 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 where where Terrence is on it, and uh, that would probably be as appropriate as anything. El Alien. And it's on my Catalio album that I did in 99. Cool. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you. I hope, uh, thank you for doing what you do. And I hope it was uh, of value to you and to people listening to it. Freedom is in the mind.
the impossible become possible, and yet remaining impossible. Thank you.